Amen. You can be seated. Kids, you can start making your way to the class. And a couple of, as the kids go, fifth graders, we originally told you you'd be with the middle schoolers. That's not true anymore. Sorry to dash your hopes, but you're back in your class. We had a number of teachers out with the flu, but we were able to rearrange. So we've got teachers for the fifth grade class. And as they go, one thing for you to think about, you know, one of the, uh, there's an old maxim for like teachers and public speakers that the, it's something like the mind can only absorb as long as the rear end can endure. And so we know that those of you sitting in the benches that your rear end endurance doesn't have a long life, but we have all these wonderfully comfortable chairs now, uh, now up. So we were talking about a smooth, seamless way where we can help transition you up to the front so you can get comfortable chairs once the kids leave. And we don't have any good ideas. So maybe if you can come up with one or if you, uh, when they leave, you just want to stand up and move, that might be, uh, the easiest thing. Now we're in Matthew and we're going through the gospel of Matthew and we're in chapter three. And chapter three and four are all about beginnings, how to begin. And, you know, beginnings really matter. So, for example, if it's the first day of your new diet and you celebrate by eating three giant jelly donuts, (laughs) beginnings matter. If it's the first day of work and you show up late and when you get out of your car to dash in, you realize you forgot your shoes, beginnings matter. We, uh, have you seen the shirts that say coffee first? I want a giant sign. Of course, it wouldn't matter because none of my kids can read anyway. But I want a sign on our door that says, stop coffee first, that I will not hear, I will not adjudicate any toy disputes. I will not listen to any pleas on why we shouldn't have to go to school today. There will be no talking until coffee first. Because beginnings matter. And as we're looking at chapter 3 and chapter 4 in Matthew, these are the beginnings. How do you begin? So Matthew's gospel is a training manual for discipleship, is to teach us. Matthew's trying to teach us the things we should know to follow the Lord and then show us the path we should go to follow the Lord. So teaching and life and embedded in each of the narratives and the stories are... um, theological truths that he wants us to know. And so chapter one is about the Trinity, who God is. Uh, Chapter two is about how we know this God, that he's revealed himself to us through natural revelation and special revelation. And what we saw last week is how you have to learn to hear the music of scripture running through the whole uh, Old and New Testaments. And you have to see how it's like a joke and get the connections and be able to interpret it like you learn how to interpret a photo negative or an x-ray. And so you're having to put it, put it together. And then now we're moving to chapter three and chapter four, and it's all about beginnings. How does the, this life of Christ, life with Christ, how does it begin? So chapter three is about repentance and baptism. So this week we're going to start talking about uh, repentance and then baptism next week. So let's read through it. And as we read through what I want you to see the structure, so kind of see how it fits. And then we're going to, once we kind of get a sense of the structure, we're going to pull out from that three lessons that we learned about repentance. So first, let's, let's, let's read it. And the kind of the main parts, verses 1 through 6, are going to set up the ministry of John the Baptist. And then verses 7 through 12 give you his message. So ministry, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. 
make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees, so one through six is setting up his ministry. And so you got the meaning of it in one through three, and then the nature of it in four through six. Now this is an illustration of one of his sermons. So this is John the Baptist's fiery sermon. So look at verse seven through 12. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the tree. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So you notice he set up, it starts out, verse 1, in those days. Now it's interesting, in those days, you look back in chapter 2, just a verse before, that's about 30 years prior. So when he's saying in those days, he means the days where the word is being fulfilled. The Lord is working out his promises and his purposes. It's the days of fulfillment. And then notice where he is. It's in the wilderness. So chapter 3 and then chapter 4 all the way up to verse 17 are all in the wilderness. So that's really important because where the beginning happens, it happens in the wilderness. That's where we begin. And the wilderness is where our preparation happens. The preparation, the training, it happens in the wilderness. Then his call in verse 2 is called to repent. And you see the different themes all throughout. Repent in verse 2. And then he uh, challenges the Pharisees and the Sadducees. uh, Who warned you to flee but bear fruit in keeping with repentance? In verse 11, for I baptize you with water for repentance. And then all four Gospels are set up with John's ministry. And then the scripture you heard read earlier this morning from Isaiah 40. They all start there. Isaiah 40, that call that uh, the Lord's going to bring the exiles back home. And he's going to prepare the way and draw them back into his presence. And then notice it's prepare the way of the Lord. The way. So there's a way that needs to be prepared. And what we see here is that um, repentance is the way that we encounter the Lord. It's the way we begin. It's the way we turn to him. It's, it's in essence our initiation. And repentance is the prelude. Repentance is the prerequisite. If you want to encounter him and experience him, it's the prerequisite or it's the pathway in. So there's three things I want us to see about repentance. First, see that it's essential preparation and I want you to see that repentance is essential preparation. Repentance's enemy is presumption, and then its end is production. So repentance is essential preparation. Look at verse 2. That's his call. And did you hear and feel the urgency of it? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then the fire language from the sermon. And notice in verse 2 when he says repent. And look what the motivation is. 
The motivation is because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. The motivation isn't so much so you can change and alter and improve your life, but it's, there's a certain reality that's about to happen that you need to prepare for. And then the call to repentance, in essence, is a call to turn. Turn. You're look, looking this way, you need to turn and focus. Look, see another way. So John the Baptist is kind of like the uh, original Paul Revere who's riding through the Judean countryside announcing, repent, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming, get ready. And then he's out, uh, out in the wilderness. Now think about just life. So repentance is the essential preparation. But think about just in life how many things, I mean almost everything you do and everything that's good in your life requires some type of preparation. A season to prepare. So think about, uh, you know, maybe that would be a good tagline. It's coffee first, repentance first. You know, it's the beginning. Um, it's how you prepare. But think about like the preparation you take. If you're going to do anything, if you're going to uh, do anything athletically, there's a certain preparation process that in general is a good idea to do beforehand. I was joking at the men's Bible study this week that uh, when Cynthia and I ran the half marathon a few weeks ago, it became painfully obvious for me by mile two that we, I had not done the proper preparation to prepare for this event. And so if you're going to train for anything, you know, just think about if you're going to have a meal, somebody has to cook and prepare the meal. Um, it's kind of like the idea of barbecue. You know, one of the things that always makes me laugh is fast food barbecue. That's a con There's no such thing as fast food barbecue. By definition, barbecue is slow cooked and takes a long time. So the only question is who's going to do all the preparing, you or somebody else? Or any type of gathering when you're having people uh, over, it takes preparation. Any type of job, relationships take preparation. Marriage takes preparation and then work. Kids take preparation. Uh, if you're any Downton Abbey fans in the house and you saw the, the movie last year, you know, the, the drama, the, the, whole, the, the plot of the movie, that the king and queen are coming to Downton and then all the preparation that's needed to prepare for their arrival. That's a similar thing that John the Baptist's role is. His role is to call out to prepare for the arrival of the king. He's coming, and we've got to make a highway smooth so you can enter into his presence and encounter him, that he can come. And then notice what's happening. Repentance is the preparation, but notice how revival's breaking out. You know, all of the countryside is going out to see him. Do you see that in verse 5? Jerusalem, all Judea, all the regions, people are coming. And the strong effects of John's ministry are people are repenting of their sins. There's this deep sense of sin and then they're coming. And notice kind of maybe the key word for the whole thing is they come to him in verse 6 confessing their sins. And so it's the power of the gospel can't begin until confession begins. It's Repentance first. It's confession first. You'll never really experience the wonder of knowing him. You won't experience God's love through Christ. You won't experience and be able to follow his teaching or become a citizen of his kingdom until repentance. Beginnings matter, and this is how you begin. You know, in one sense, one of the things we say sometimes at the confession time is that uh, healing can't begin until blame shifting ends. 
You know, there's no healing can start until you stop making excuses, stop pointing fingers, stop shifting the blame. And that's where it begins. And that's where its power is unleashed in your life. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the question recently in a relational context. Because so you need to think of repentance primarily in the fact that relationship has been broken. So it's a relational context. Relationships have been broken. And how do you heal them? When uh, Adam first sinned against uh, God in the garden, and there was that relationship that was broken. And you remember God's initial question? It was, where are you? Where are you? Now, God wasn't asking for information. That's not like, hey, where are you guys? Are y'all playing hide and seek? How fun. I've always wanted to play hide and seek. It was a question meant to lead to repentance. Because the first question is to own and admit, where are you? We are supposed to be together and we are not. There's separation. Why are we not? And then the reunion can't happen until you own and admit where you really are and where you really want to be. And that's what repentance is. Repentance is admitting and owning this is where I am. We're actually separated and the reason why is because I'm frustrated about this. I'm angry about this. I'm hurt about this. I'm disconnected because of this. And so owning, this is where you really are. But you can't experience the power of the gospel until you repent. So what's going to keep us from doing it? Why would we not do it? And the, the answer, it, we get a hint of the answer here in verse 9. Notice when the Pharisees and Sadducees come to John, then he has this really remarkable confronting message for them. Um, I don't think he had read how to win friends and influence people or whatever. So he says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. And what you see is the enemy to repentance is presumption. He says, don't presume to say in your mind. Don't presume to self-justify. Don't presume to self-exalt. You notice the characters who will come, both of these characters, we'll see more of them as it gets played out all throughout the Bible. The Pharisees, Sadducees. The Pharisees were a lay movement. They were a uh, movement of people who are utterly committed to purity and seeing that the community and themselves be purified. And it's really important to see that um, it's very easy to have in our mind that, oh, these people are the types of Pharisees, but not see how there's a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. Like one of the great books from the last decade is Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind. And one thing, he's talking about the political divide in our country, and he shows how on both sides, there's an element of presumed righteousness, like, uh, of, of we are right and this is why. And he says, until you can can be able to see, in essence, he would say there's two, two groups of Pharisees. And until you understand why, uh, they'll never be able to talk to each other. But we all have a little bit of Pharisee in us. Some of us have a lot, but there's a little at least in all of us. And then the Sadducees are the people who have obtained political power. They're kind of the elite, the social um, elite. And then notice this phrase, this is fascinating. He says, you brood of vipers, you brood of vipers. What kind of phrase is that? 
you brood of vice. So he's not talking about brood. It's not a word we typically use. So he's not talking about like 16-year-old girl who doesn't want to be out to eat with her parents. So she's just brooding because they took her phone away. Uh, brood is more like the word you'd say when you see like somebody walk in and they have like 12 children around them. So, oh, what a brood. Or another way you can say it, what he's actually saying, like he's saying, you sons of the snake. You're a son of the snake. And then what's, what's he getting that there? He's, he's tapping in onto a theme of the serpent. He's saying, you're children of the serpent. And what the serpent does, what makes his, he's got poison in his mouth. What makes the, them venomous is the, the sinister use of words. You know, Jesus in John 8 is going to say something very similar to the exact same group. And he's going to tell them uh, they're going to attack. And he's going to tell them that they're um, following their father, the devil. And they say, what a second. We're not, we're not following. We're, we're children of Abraham. We're not sons of sexual immorality like you. And Jesus is using a very similar metaphor. And the question is, in essence, who's, who's fathering you? And the image is the, you, you repeat or you act like, you imitate. That's the image. The, the one who you're a child of is the one you're imitating, you're replicating. And, and Paul will use this language in Romans 3 where he talks about that the poison of asps is under their lips. And that you can tell by the way they talk. So it's their voice, it's their words that are sinister. And he's saying, you're, you're sons of the snake. But their problem is that they're presuming. They're assuming that they're the ones in the right. They're assuming that they don't need to repent because. And for them, notice it's their heritage. In verse 9, we have Abraham as our father. We don't need to repent. We're right because of this. And so think about in your own heart, what are all the different things you're tempted to presume upon? We can presume upon our education. Must be right because I'm educated. We can, people can presume on their ancestry like they were. You can presume on your past achievements. You can presume on your skills. You can presume on ritual purity. Had a friend who's doing ministry in Muslim areas, and he's talking about how uh, he'll engage with, uh, sometimes he'll see men who'll come to, to one of the prayer kind of times, and they'll straddle the entrance into the mosque, they'll kind of I don't want to mess up though. So one in, in, they'll have one foot in, one foot out, and they've been doing work on the cell phone, and then ask why, is so I can be at prayer. Like we're praying, so I'm here. See, this foot, it's here, it's in, but I'm still doing, and we can do that in a hundred different ways. Presuming that I'm going through the motions, so I must be okay. You know, in 2013, you know, one of the challenges... <laughs> I'm trying to think how to set this story up. One of the challenges you can have, many challenges in marriage, all of them good, all good things. One of the challenges is you develop different concepts of time. And uh, so, for example, I generally feel like if we're 10 minutes early, we're late. And so I start getting very anxious when it's, you know, and then um, Cynthia has a different conception of proper arrival. And... Uh, 
And so in 2013, my dad got our family tickets to the final four. So the final four was kind of a gift for a family. We're going to go to the final four and there were some different things. So for the first games on Monday, she couldn't go. And then she came to the finals here, Michigan, Louisville, Murray, uh, Murray State, and I forget who. Anyway. Anyway, so it was that 2013, and uh, my I, she as she gets to know our family, she's learned that these kind of things kind of run in the family. And like my dad was very anxious, you know, Atlanta traffic, big game. You don't want to get in the hustle and bustle. Um, Luke, pull up the picture. We got a picture. Okay, so this is, if you recognize this, this is the Georgia Dome. This is where the game was going to be played. And I sent this picture to Cynthia to say, don't worry, we made it in time. Because eventually, there will be 88,000 people in this building. Right now, there's 12. And we are six of the 12. And so this is a picture from our seat. And it just so happened that in this entire building, the seats directly next to me was then filled with two people. So you, it would had to be comical because you'd look and there's not a soul on this entire side of the arena except like six people in a row. So I couldn't even like spread out and kind of enjoy the, the, the space. And so I started thinking, all right, well, you know, we're here so much earlier. What would Cynthia do? She'd strike up in conversation with these people. So this is how marriage kind of improves you. So uh, she would talk to them. And so I say, well, how are you guys? Where are you from? And uh, they were from Louisville. And we had lived in Louisville for five years. And here's kind of a, a hint. If you ever talk, it's not Louisville, it's Louisville. And it was a mom and her about 15-ish year old son. And you can tell, like, this was the highlight of his life so far. He was so excited. He was fully decked out in cardinal gear and kind of teasing, I said, you know, who you pulling for? And, uh... And so we struck up a conversation because we lived in Louisville for five years. Give me, and it's not the Cardinals, it's not plural, it's Cardinal. So what do you think the Cardinal, what, what's their chance? How are they going to pull it out? Are they going to win? Give me the scouting report. And he said, I have no doubt in my mind they're going to win. It's like, yes, I like this confidence. It's a man who is confident. So tell me why, what's the reason for your, your hope? Why are you so confident? He goes, I got three reasons. So, all right, we've, we've worked this out coming down. We've talked about this. Three reasons. Give me number one. He said, number one, I've never heard of Murray State. <laughs> True. Yes. Okay. You've never heard of Murray State. He's like, who are they? Nobody knows who they are. I mean, they don't, do they even have a basketball team? Well, yes, actually. And they made it the final four and they're really good. They have five seniors. They play you know, five as one and you're more talented, but okay, good. You never heard of Murray State. Number two. And then he pulls out this coin and just holds it up. Like it's like, I should just recognize that this, this penny and he holds up the coin. I said, Nice, you have a penny. What? And he said, found this on the way in. <laughs> it was on heads. A good luck charm. Found a good luck charm. Come to found a penny on heads. All right, reason number two. Got the good luck charm. Of course, there's no doubt they're going to win. And then number three, what's number three? And then he looked at mom and they just smiled and she said, we've already reserved our room for Monday night. <laughs> They have to win. We booked a hotel. And uh, I thought, okay, good. Love your confidence. And that's one of the beautiful things about sports. You can have irrational hope and confidence. A couple years ago when Georgia was in the national championship game, I started walking out wearing my, my lucky shirt. I've had this since I was in eighth grade. 
And Cynthia stopped me at the door and said, where are you going? Well, I'm going out to watch the game. You're, wear you're wearing that? Yeah. What else would I wear? I mean, we can't win if I don't see that. Are there going to be other people there, like other humans? Hmm. The irrational confidence. What's your hope? I'm, we presume. We have such a tendency. We can presume in all types of things. And then their problem is they're presuming in their own goodness, their own worth, their own ancestry. This is enough. So what are we presuming in? And even hearing that story, you might think, well, that actually, you know, that... You might say, hey, don't make fun of that boy too much because that sounds like a lot of Christians I know. Isn't just the Christian faith a presumption uh, based first on your own ignorance because you just don't know more about the world or life? And you have some good luck charm that's shaped in a cross that you think you just wave to scare away all the baddies in the world? And aren't you just falsely hoping that there's some room somewhere of resentment? You've already punched your ticket to get there. It's reserved. So what's our hope? You know, to that I would say, well, you know, our hope is primarily rooted and grounded in a person. In the fact that there was a hole in the ground in Palestine that a dead body was in and now it's empty. So our hope is built on a person, but even more than that, you know, we might have three things. I say there's three things that I put my hope in and presume and trust and cling to. One is that there's nothing as intellectually credible, I think, as Christianity when you're trying to make sense of why is the world the way it is, you're looking for things that offer enough explanatory power to explain all of life. I don't think there's any way of thinking that offers uh, total explanatory power to explain why the world is the way it is. But two, not only is it intellectually credible, it's emotionally satisfying. I don't think there's anything in the world that quite has the power to be able to produce and sustain joy in the midst of any circumstances. I don't know if there's anything else in the world that has the power to generate and motivate hope in the midst of any circumstances. It's emotionally satisfying. And then the third thing I would say, it's also socially transformative. I don't think there's been any movement in world history that has had the social transformation that's unleashed the power of good quite like Christ, his gospel, and his church. But the question is, what are you presuming on? Their problem is that they were presuming on the wrong things. And one of the things, the power of repentance gets unleashed in our life, or it never will get unleashed as long as we're presuming on the wrong thing. You know, it's an interesting question to think about that voice when Jesus, or when John attacks them and says, you're sons of the snake. Like it's the snake's primary voice that you're hearing. And it's his primary voice that's shaping how you see yourself and the world. And it's an interesting question to think about whose primary voice is shaping me? What's the primary voice that's shaping the way I think about life, the way I see the world, the way I view myself and others? David Pallison, kind of the wonderful biblical counselor who passed away this past year, he said whenever he was uh, counseling with individuals, one of, the, one of the primary questions that he was working through in his mind is he would say, who's fathering this person? And what he meant by that is whose voice is the primary voice shaping the way they think about the world? I mean, is it Fox News or is it MSNBC? Is it something like that? Is it sports radio? Is it not this? What's the primary voice that's shaping how they think? 
Now the power of repentance can never be unleashed until we hear the sound of his voice. And then notice, so the enemy to repentance is presumption, but the goal, repentance's end, is production. Notice the fruit language. In verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then in the end, he has all this kind of agricultural imagery. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. He's coming, bear fruit. And so the question is, what does the fruit of repentance look like? And this is going to be a major theme that runs throughout the whole gospel. What does it mean to bear fruit, to be fruitful? This is what the kingdom is is like. And in chapter 13, we'll get seven stories. And five of them are about the different types of fruit. There's going to be seed that goes in the ground. One of the master metaphors is there's four soils and the seed comes in and he's looking for fruit. But the dangers are Satan can come and snatch it or the cares can come and anxieties of the world can come and choke it. Or you can just be so shallow you never get any depth and you won't be fruitful. But the theme of fruitfulness is character. The fruit is the fruits of the spirit where you are developing the fruits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the character traits that are the fruit that's to be produced. So it's actually repentance is the beginning to producing the character transformation that the gospel brings about. It's to produce humility, dependence. So let's think about how we can then work this into our own life. Because repentance is the kind of thing um, you have to work into your soul, work into your heart. Because beginnings matter. How you begin matters. And then the life of faith begins with repentance. And so there's a repentance that starts the Christian life and there's a repentance that sustains the Christian life. It starts it and it sustains it, keeps it going. So a couple of things just to think about when you think about repentance. It's the idea that direction is more important than speed. Repentance is getting focused on the right direction. And even if you're moving slowly, even if you realize that mile two, you haven't prepared properly for this event. Perpetual forward motion. Just go in the right direction. One of the things we were kind of joking about the Disney Marathon is I was keeping track of the distance on my watch and actually ran almost 14 miles. Because the other, you know, point nine, almost a full mile was kind of weaving in and out of people. And for, that's a lot of wasted energy. Direction, more important than speed. Keep going in the right direction. Repentance is to orient your heart so you know that you're going in the right, in the right direction. And it's one of those things that repentance is so essential because almost like uh, God can't love you until you look at him. You have to look at him. He sees you. It's kind of like you see with kids. You see kids and, you know, like kids have this idea that like, you know, we'll see our kids. They're kind of trying to hide something from us. And so they'll cover up their eyes because they think, oh, if I can't see you, you obviously can't see me. So let me take this handful of chocolates and try and shove it in my face. You can't see. You can't see me. It's like, hello, I can still see you. You can't see me, but I can see you. That's the call of repentance. God's saying, hello, where are you? I can see you. Can you see me? Turn your eyes to see him. And then the reality, as you know, sticking with the kids theme, the the cliche, the line, it's it's easier to uh, hug a dirty kid than it is a stiff kid. You know, kids who are stiff, they, they push you away. They're stiff. It's hard to hug a child like that. 
but you can hug a dirty child that lets you. And that's the idea with repentance. It's easier to hug a dirty child than as a stiff child. It's stiffness, it's presumption that's going to keep you from his presence. So let's take a few moments and let's just pray together and just do a time where we walk one another through a series and cycle of repentance. And so first, there's just the repentance that starts the Christian life. I mean, we spoke the Apostles' Creed, which gives you the basic facts of the story of the world, that God the Father Almighty, he so loved the world that he sent his beloved son to turn us back to him. He sent his son to love us and to free us because he knows that in serving him is freedom and knowing him is life. And so he sent his son, born the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, who lived a perfect life, who died for our sins, who rose again, and now is seated at the Father's right hand and sends his Holy Spirit so that he can draw us to himself, so that he can enable us to turn and turn our eyes to him and wholeheartedly turn from our sinful and self-centered ways and to look at him. That's called repentance. That's the gift of his mercy. And then we can entrust our lives to him. And that's called faith. So maybe you've never done that before. And if you want to, you say, I want to trust him. I want to turn. I know my problem is I've never owned my own sin and my own situation. So you cry out to him and say, help me. And you could pray something like this. Almighty Father, I confess that I have sinned against you in my thoughts and words and actions. And I'm truly sorry and humbly repent. Thank you for forgiving my sins through the death of your son, Jesus. I turn to you and give you my life. Fulfill, fill, and strengthen me with your Holy Spirit to love you and to follow Jesus as my Lord in the fellowship of the church and to become more like him each day. That's the kind of prayer of repentance that starts the Christian life. But also there's a prayer of repentance that sustains it. So if you have your bulletin, you can look, and that prayer is written there on the back, and then um, a series of a cycle I sent out yesterday in the email when we were doing the seven deadly sins. We looked at this every single week, but one of the most fruitful exercises I've ever taken part in is just daily trying to pray through one of these areas of repentance. And this comes from the Tim Keller article where he's riffing on a quote from George Whitfield. And the quote is, Lord, give me a deep humility, a burning love, a well-guided zeal, and a single eye and then let men and devils do their worst. And so we repent our way into a place of deep humility, burning love, well-guided zeal, and a single eye. So let's walk through these together. First, we want to pray and ask the Lord to give us a deep humility. So examine your own heart. Have you looked down on anyone this week? Have you been too stung by criticism? Have you felt snubbed or ignored? Then repent. Seek a de decreasing disdain from him, a decreasing pain. Because in the light of the gospel, you can let go of the need to keep up a good image. It's too great of a burden. And now it's unnecessary. So the fruit of this type of gospel repentance is grateful, restful joy. Do you have grateful, restful joy in your life? Then repent of the things that are keeping you from it. And ask him to give it.
And now we want to repent of our indifference. What we want to be is have hearts that are filled with a burning love, not indifferent. And so examine yourself. Have you spoken or thought unkindly of anyone? Maybe what you need to repent of is presuming, not so much presuming things about yourself, but presuming things about others. That, oh, I already know people like you. Have you thought unkindly of anyone? Have you justified yourself by caricaturing another? This week, have you been impatient or irritable or self-absorbed or inattentive to those around you? Repent of that. Repent. Ask him to help you. No coldness of heart. Lord, give us no unkindness, no impatience, no indifference. And meditate and think about his grace and his gospel until it begins to produce a warmth and affection in your heart. Or maybe you need to repent of anxiety and ask the Lord to give you the good fruit of a well-guided zeal or a wise courage. So maybe this week you've avoided certain tasks or avoided certain people or you've been anxious and worried or rash or impulsive. Ask the Lord to help you that there would be no cowardly avoidance of hard things or no anxious or rash behavior and that you would seek thoughtfulness and strategic boldness. Or maybe this you need to repent of idolatry or what is it? Motivations. The things that are motivating you to do the things you do. Gospel fruit, repentance, the fruit of repentance is godly motivations. So think about the things that you've done this week and what you've been motivated by. Am I doing what I'm doing for God's glory? Or am I being driven by fears? Or the need for approval? Or the love of comfort? Needs? Or control? Or a hunger for acclaim or power? Am I looking at others with envy? Giving over to the first motions of lust or gluttony? Is my time being spent on urgent things or important things because of these inordinate desires? You ask the Lord to help you to purify your motives. Ask how does Jesus provide for me all that I'm looking for and those other things? The ability to overcome fear, true approval, true comfort, And healing can't begin until repentance does. Beginnings matter. And so we have excuses have to end. Blame shifting have to end. So healing, repentance. The reason why all the gospels begin with John the Baptist's ministry is because all of the gospel begins with John the Baptist's ministry. And his ministry is a call to repent. So once we do that, then now we can enter into the path. 
And we can celebrate the fact that the relationship has been restored and renewed. And so one of the reasons each week at Trinity we come to the Lord's table is just because it's our weekly reminder that by His grace and for His glory, our relationships have been renewed. And we can symbolically come to His table because we are welcome to fellowship with Him as members of His family. So uh, as our servers come and get in place, we have four... um, Four stations. The back one is gluten-free. If you have a gluten allergy, you can go there. And once they come and in place, you come.